For the past two years, Revision Path has had one mission, showcasing the stories of black web designers, graphic designers, and web developers. And along the way, I've talked with well over a hundred of you, including software developers, indie game developers, educators, presentation specialists, UI designers, UX developers, entrepreneurs, art directors, creative directors, illustrators, the list goes on and on. Today's episode is a little different. In honor of Revision Path's two-year anniversary, I asked you all on Twitter to send me your questions about me and about the show and the website, and I also wanted to talk a bit about the survey we did a few months back and let you in on the future of Revision Path, some plans and goals that I want to try to hit in this next year. So without further ado, Dre, start the music. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Can you believe it's been two years already? Two years of Revision Path? Uh, The podcast actually is a year old this week. Uh, This is the one-year anniversary of the podcast. This is the two-year anniversary of Revision Path. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first episode once I shifted over to a podcast format was episode 16 with Alicia Randolph. This is episode 68, so we've had 52 episodes, one every week for a whole year. I'm not going to do any ad reads this episode. Hopefully MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market are cool with that coming up with new ad reads for every episode is a lot i don't want them to always kind of sound the same so i try to make them a little bit different each time Uh, but i really want the focus of this to be on the audience i want the focus to be on your questions and i want the focus to be on me so i can let you know what's going to be coming up in the future Um, and i don't want to do any ad reads with that you're already familiar if you look at the show notes you'll see ads for these services anyway so if you really 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 miss them because i know you miss them you can go to revisionpath.com for this particular episode they'll be in the show notes so yeah like i said earlier some of you sent in questions for me to answer so let's go ahead and get right into that how do you choose guests for the show this is a question that is asked by peter clark Uh, This is a very common question. How do I find guests for the show? I usually find them through one of two methods. The first method is LinkedIn. Uh, The second method is through direct solicitation, meaning that they contact me. When I'm using LinkedIn, I will, you know, try to find one or two designers or something like that. And then I just mine their connections, look to see who else they might be connected to. I look at LinkedIn groups and things of that nature. So, Uh, From that, I've been able to build a pretty big list of people to reach out to. I've got about, I think at last count, it's maybe about 1,300. It might be a little more than that of people to reach out to. So there's really no shortage of folks. And I mean, that's worldwide. I mean, that's a small number if we're talking worldwide. But that's just really from my basic kind of research methods. My LinkedIn sleuthing is how I'm finding it out. And like I said, the second way is that people will contact me and say, I want to be on the show. I say, great, come be on the show, right? Uh, Another question that's kind of a related question to that is, you know, what's the criteria? And again, this is also on the about page on the website. Like, what's the criteria? Normally, when I'm looking at someone that I think would be good for the show, I am looking to see if they have a body of work 
And with that body of work, I'm looking to see, is there a common thread that would make a good story, right? So it's not just about, oh, you're a designer and you've done X, Y, Z and you come and talk about your work. I think that's great, but I also think that can be kind of boring. Um, I want there to be some kind of a story, some kind of a, a soul behind it, whatever sort of viewpoint that they want to get across, which is normally why the questions I ask, yes, some of them are more business or more, you know, kind of related on their process. But I also ask about like what motivates them, who inspires them, things like that, because I want to get to kind of the meat of the issue. I want to get to a, a good story. So I think everyone I've interviewed so far has had great stories to share. Um, but that's really kind of the main criteria. Like, do you have a body of work that I think is worth talking about and exploring? And that doesn't mean that you have to have like gobs of experience with the top design firms or companies. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just me looking to see, okay, do you have what I think would be a good story? And that's something that is completely subjective. Um, but that is something that I, I do look for to, to make sure that's the case. I also, you know, and I have to say this because we get so many people that want to be on the show that are not in the the uh, range of what the show is about. So with Revision Path, you know, I talk to designers and developers and really just like black creative techies, digital makers, that sort of thing. Right. But I often get journalists and writers and multi-level marketers and social media people. And I'm like, this is not for you. I appreciate you listening. That's great. But this show is not for you. This is, you know, this is about designers and developers essentially. So we do get those people, um, every now and then, not as much as I used to, but I think the point has gotten across (laughs) um, for the most part. Um, a related question to this, which I also saw that came in was why haven't you interviewed blank and blank can be a name of another designer. There's no telling who it could be. Why haven't you interviewed them? So let's talk about the outreach process when I do interviews, because I think this is, this is something I've probably been the least transparent about as it relates to revision path. Uh, But I want you to kind of see like what I do when it comes down to it. So, and and why it's always great when people say, Oh, I want to be on the show because it cuts out that outreach process. It cuts it down to about 95%. It makes it so easy. So my outreach process, like I said, I have a list. It's about 1,300 people. And I reach out to the same number of people every month. I reach out to 20 men. I reach out to 20 women. Um, And this is, of course, as I'm striving to get a good cross-section, a good kind of microcosm, I guess, of what the black design diaspora looks like. So it's not just, you know, a designer in the U.S. in a major metropolitan area. It's you know, designers overseas in the UK and Africa and other places. It's a range of ages. It's men, it's women, it's members of the LGBT community. I want to try to make it pretty varied in that respect. So it's not just kind of one type of viewpoint, you know? So I do my outreach. I do 20 men, 20 women. I do find that men um, at an overwhelming majority respond back more to me than women do, um, which is, is kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'd say like, if I send out to 20 men, uh, at least 85% of those will respond in some sort of way. If I send it to 20 women, at least maybe five to 10 will respond back. So it, it kind of varies. Um, 
the question usually I think for men and women when I once I reach out to them is like, how did you find me? Where did you find me at? Which I think if you have a website and a LinkedIn profile and a Twitter account and a portfolio or a GitHub, you know, profile, finding you should not be the problem. It should be easy to find you if you have work and it's out there to be seen. It should be easy to find you. So I don't see why that is really kind of a surprise. But for most people, this is like their first interview. This is the first time anyone has reached out to them to talk to them about the work that they do. So I think there might be some level of apprehension there as it relates to getting back to me because this is the first time someone has really talked to them about what they want to do or what their work is. And they might not know how to respond to that. They might not know how to react to that. They might need a pep talk to tell them, yes, you would be great for this. I've done that before. It, it really varies. It varies uh, a lot. Um, I think it's interesting that designers overseas are probably a lot more willing to talk to me or at least more willing to kind of look at what the show is about than designers in the U.S., which is interesting. Um, not really sure why that is. Well, I'm, I have some theories on why that might be, but uh, I do want to get back to more of an international focus. That's something that I've slacked on in the past six months or so with Revision Path, and I want to get back to you know, really talking to our brothers and sisters in Africa and the UK and, you know, all parts between wherever there are black and brown faces that fit within the focus of the show. I want to talk to them if they're doing design or development or something. So that's, uh, I think that answers that question pretty well. I hope so. This question is from Joe Lewis, uh, not the boxer. Um, he asks, why don't you do the written interviews anymore? I prefer those over podcasts because I don't like hearing your voice. Well, if you fast forward, well, no, I guess even if you do that, you'll still hear my voice if you fast forward past the intro. So I hate to break it to you, Joe, but that's just what it is. Uh, the reason that I don't do written interviews anymore is because they took so much time to put together. Uh, and part of that, I think, is my method of how I usually do interviews, which is by email. And even if you give a person a deadline, that's not a guarantee that they're going to respond by that deadline. I've, I quickly found that out. Uh, so people wouldn't respond to emails on time if they responded at all. Or there would have to be so much editing of what they did send that it just took longer to put out. You know, if I tried to do written interviews every week, it would be such a hassle trying to make that happen because people just don't respond, you know, on time. They just don't. So even if you schedule a day and decide to talk to the person on the phone or something like that and write down your words and transcribe it and everything, even that takes time and money. And I could do that myself. I probably wouldn't. I would hire a service to do it. Uh, the service that I use in the past is called Rev. It's at Rev.com. And they do audio transcriptions for, I think it's a dollar a minute. So Let's say I took an, a revision path interview. Average interview is about 44, 45 minutes. We're talking $45 now an episode if I transcribe that. That's an added cost per episode that I can't absorb because I don't have that funding really to do that. Um, I would quickly run out of money to make that happen. Now, if transcriptions are something that you all want, you should probably donate so I have money to make that happen because uh, that's really something that would take up more time to do if in order to really make that a feature for the site uh, but yeah um 
we had interns last year that did a few interviews. Uh, Rashida Otumba, she did, I think, about two or three interviews last year. Good interviews. They were great. She did an interview with uh, Shanley Kane with Model View Media. Uh, she did an interview with Tiffany McKell and Dr. Courtney Ryan Ziegler with Black Star Media. Um, so I think that, you know, if I had the extra manpower to really make that happen, that would be great. Uh, that's not something I can really add on to my current uh, workload right now and have it be something of quality. You know what I mean? Uh, I If I do those interviews, I want them to be as good as the ones that are currently up there. And I just don't have the time for that. People that I reach out to don't respond back in a timely fashion for me to really make that happen. So it's, you know, it's really those two factors. That's what made the written interviews so hard to do. And that's why, that's really why I switched over to podcasts because it just took so long to make sure that I had consistent interviews every week if I did written interviews. Whereas with the podcast, I can record that, you know, in 60 minutes, 90 minutes, get that edited, bam, it's done, it's up, it's ready. Uh, There's not a lot of extra stuff that I have to do, so... That is why there are no longer any written interviews. That's not to say that they won't come back in the future, but if they do, especially if you want to have, you know, podcast episodes transcribed, uh, you'll have to donate to really make sure that I've got the funds to make that happen. Otherwise, it's not really going to go on the priority list. speaking about funding the next question here is from Melissa Arnold and it's it's about funding she says why are you always asking for money every episode you're asking for sponsorship I don't understand I don't support any of my favorite podcasts because they offer episodes for free this is kind of a backwards way of thinking it so anyone that puts out not just a podcast but if you have a podcast if you have a blog if you have a video blog if you're a digital content creator of some sort. I think you realize that even though you are putting out what you do for free, it costs you money to do it, right? Um, it costs money for hosting. It costs money for good gear. You know, if you really are taking it seriously, it costs money for design to make sure that you're really communicating your brand. So none of this is really free. The hope or the proposition is that when we're creating digital content, that it, because it's of some value to you, if it's of some value to you, that you will sort of pay it forward by helping to support that independent media that you enjoy. I mean, podcasting like, you know, blogging or like video blogging is a super independent medium. Anyone nowadays can really do any of these particular things um, and just put content out there. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be supported financially if it is of some value to you. So the whole thing about why do we ask for sponsorship? Because it costs money to put together a Vision Path episode. I can break it down for you. So every episode, um, once I finished recording, um, I send that audio off to RJ. RJ Basilio is our audio engineer. And to edit the uh, the episode costs anywhere between, I'd say, 20 and maybe $50, depending on the length of the episode and how much needs to be edited out, how many ums and ahs need to be scrubbed and things of that nature. Uh, really kind of depends. Um, and even when RJ does his work, he doesn't do everything. 
he will edit the the raw episode that I recorded, pass it back to me. Then I have to take time out, write the intro, write the outro, record the intro, record the outro, mix everything together with music, um, you know, mix that with the edited episode and then upload that to where I need to upload it to. So when you're doing a podcast and you've got it listed on iTunes or things like this, you have to make sure that you have an audio host which supports that. Popular ones are Libsyn, Podomatic. I use Simplecast because I have two podcasts. I'm paying about $25 a month for hosting. And so that means that that feed goes out to a bunch of different services, iTunes, Stitcher, a couple other places. Uh, the episodes are also on SoundCloud. SoundCloud is 130 something a year, like $135 a year. So there's that. Uh, there's my web host. My web host is about 13 or 14 bucks a month. So there's that. Um, and then really, I mean, for me personally, there's just the, the, I don't know if I want to call it the opportunity cost, but revision path is still very much a side project. Like this is not my nine to five main job. I do have an agency that I run called 318 media, which is my main source of income. But in terms of really putting everything together for the podcast and, and stuff like that, uh, that's why I ask for sponsorship. So I'm not really paying too much out of my own pockets to do stuff. Cause then what will happen is what if I hit a month where I don't have enough money, then I can't get the podcast episodes produced. And you know, then it's a drop in quality and all this sort of stuff. And of course, as I get feedback from people about what they want to see with revision path and how they wanted to improve a lot of those things do require money so the sound for example has had a drastic upgrade this year because i've gotten sponsorship money and i can buy an audio interface and a, a really good mic and headphones so i can produce a better podcast the software that i use to record pamela um pamela's about 35 bucks i think i mean you buy it once and and you're good but uh, you know, I use that. Of course, I use Adobe Creative Cloud to create the graphics and to edit the website and stuff like that. So I'm paying for that every month. That's like 50 bucks a month. So it's a lot, <laughs> you know, as, as at the end of the day, while the episode is free, it costs a lot of money to give you the free content. So the reason that I ask for the sponsorship is so I can help to create the things that you all are asking me for. So when you're asking me for transcriptions, I can do transcriptions once I have money to pay for transcriptions. If you're asking for videos and tutorials, which people often ask for, if you give me money so I can do that, we can make that happen. You know, it's sort of like when you're a kid and you ask your mom to go to McDonald's and she, you know, kind of retorts back and says, well, do you have McDonald's money? You know, it's, it's sort of like that in a way. There's only so much that I can do with the funds and, and the space and the time that I have in order to really put it out there for you all. I talk about this uh, sort of golden ratio, or at least I've talked about this in a few interviews, this golden ratio between time, um, audience, and money, right? Every podcaster is trying to get the sweet spot of those three particular factors. If you have time and you have money, you can pretty much solidify an audience and you do that through marketing, right? You do it through marketing. You do it through other methods, contests, giveaways. We do contests and giveaways. That's kind of something else that uh, we need money for because people aren't always, well, yeah, people are very rarely, I'm not saying that they don't, but we very rarely 
have people that just say, hey, I want to do a giveaway. Here's something you can give away. Nine times out of 10, I'm purchasing something that has to be given away. So that's money, you know, and the giveaway, of course, the, the purpose of the giveaway is not only to reward our loyal audience, but also to attract attention from other people that want to find out and learn about the show. So there's that whole aspect to it. Um, but yeah, if you have time and money, you can pretty much solidify an audience. If you have money and you have an audience, then you can buy time, so to speak. You can hire a virtual assistant. You can hire an audio engineer. I really only hired the audio engineer, I think, in May of last year. And I was really paying out of pocket for that. I haven't started paying uh, from sponsor funds until we really started getting sponsor money coming in. Otherwise, I was paying kind of every month for that. Um, and then if you have audience and you have time, you can get money because that's what sponsors are looking for. Sponsors are looking for engaged audiences for a particular podcast. So if I can just kind of go a little bit off tangent here and talk about sponsorships and, and podcasts and things of that nature. So what I do for Revision Path for sponsorships is probably super cheap as it relates to what most design podcasts offer or ask for for sponsorship. Um, I ask for a hundred dollars an episode to sponsor an episode, and then you can sponsor at like the five dollar fist bump level is what I talk about, where every month you just pay five dollars to Revision Path, kind of, you know, forever, pretty much. Um, and that's a very affordable option. I wanted to keep it as something that I think most people could afford. You know, a five dollar debit. I, I thought that would be something that a lot of people could afford. Uh, when I first started doing the sponsorships. The episode sponsorships were $20 <laughs> and I was surprised by how many people responded or, or would just send me messages and say that was too expensive, uh, which, okay, it's too expensive for $20 for an episode. There are other design podcasts that have episode sponsorship at $250 per episode, $300 per episode. I'm asking for 20 bucks and people were telling me it was too expensive, uh, it was only after I kept hearing that that I decided I was going to bump it up to a hundred. And once I bumped it up to a hundred, that's when I really started getting sponsors, you know, sort of coming in. So every time when you kind of hear that ad read, not from MailChimp or Hover or Creative Market, but usually from some other person or company, they've sponsored a hundred dollars for the particular episode. Um, and I think even that is affordable again, based on the levels of what other design podcasts offer based on their audience. Um, and usually when I'm looking at sponsors and things like that, I want to make sure that the sponsor is not only someone that I would use, like a service that I would use or a person that I would like, but I want to make sure there's something that you all can benefit from, that you all can get some type of, of value from. I've turned down sponsors in the past that just did not align with what I thought was good for revision path. Like I could have taken the money. But I don't think it would have been good for the overall brand or for the overall value of what I think Revision Path offers, uh, which can kind of make it hard. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's a hard sell for a black podcast about design. It's a hard sell because it's a design podcast. It's a hard sell because the people are black. Um, so that makes it so much of an uphill battle when it comes to finding sponsors and getting sponsorships uh, because... People have never heard of the folks that are being interviewed, so they don't know if they want to really um, financially support a show 
for people that aren't like the big names and the big rock stars that are out there in the design community. So normally when I'm talking to sponsors, I have to sell them on the value. I sell them on what the value of Revision Path represents in terms of diversity in tech and diversity in the design field, what that means in terms of the future of our industries. I have to sell it on that. I can't sell it on just, oh, it's a podcast about design. I can't do that because no one's interested. I've had uh, multiple advertisers tell me, you know, flat out, we're not interested in that race shit. So again, that makes it very hard to try to get money from sponsors when they're bluntly just telling you like, we're not interested because it's, it's too racial. We don't think our audience would, would really vibe with that, all this kind of stuff. So that makes sponsorship tough (laughs) to say the least. Um, And there's only so much I can keep paying out of my pocket before it no longer becomes something that's financially viable, you know? So that's why I'm always asking for sponsorships because I feel like if it's really offering value to you, you would, you know, sponsor it. And again, I'm not asking for a ton of money. I'm asking for the tip jar, for example. I asked, there's three levels, the tip jar, the $5 fist bump, and you can sponsor an episode. The tip jar, you can give anything you want. You can give a dollar if you want to. Some people have donated a dollar. Um, so you can donate any amount in the tip jar. The $5 fist bump just means that, yeah, I'm going to support you moving forward at $5 a month, which I think, again, super affordable, super affordable. Um, And what you get with that is you get um, not just a a spot on our donors page, but also you get subscribed to the uh, fist bump bulletin. And this is something that I send out to donors and sponsors uh, every week. Every Friday morning, I send it out. And it's basically a dispatch of the week. They get to hear next week's episode early. Um, I run things by them before I run them, you know, to the general public. So it's kind of like an insider's club for people that have financially supported the show. Now they're also on this list, right? But it's only for people that come in at that $5 kind of fist bump level list or for people that sponsor an episode. For regular donors, they don't get on that list. Sorry. Um, and the episode sponsors, of course, they get mentioned in the show. They get special placement on the um, on the episode page and things like that. So I, I try to keep the rates what, at what I think is an affordable level based on, you know, the numbers for the show. So that's, you know, kind of why I'm always asking for money, because quite frankly, we always need money to kind of keep things going. That's that's kind of the nature of the beast. Russell Jordan asks, I remember hearing an old episode where you talked about having a classified directory for designers. What happened to that? So that's a good question. Um, We did have, uh, for a very short period of time, uh, we created a directory so designers could create their own profiles. Because what happens is I get a fair amount of people that will contact Revision Path looking specifically for a black designer or developer of some sort for their project, usually with no other information other than I just need a black designer developer, right? Um, I've had recruiters contact me about this. I've had um, companies, you know, contact about this. And so I felt like if I could create a directory where people could just go there and just search and try to find the people that they're looking for, 
it would kind of save me the trouble of having to respond back and say, oh, just look through the interviews and you'll find someone X, Y, Z, right? Um, so <laughs> the directory was something which uh, Saida Mitchum was going to work on. If you remember, um, Revision Path kind of merged with Inspiring Black Designers, which was Saida Mitchum's website last year, like last May, I believe. And, you know, her and one of the interns that we had, I think it was also Rashida, who I mentioned earlier, were working on the directory. We're working on making sure that it was kind of going to be something that designers could use. I know Saida reached out to a lot of people that she interviewed, asked if it would be okay to include their information in the directory, just so we had some people to kind of start off with to kind of make sure it didn't look so super empty. Well, what happened was, uh, Rashida, I'm sorry. Well, Rashida left, first of all, uh, before the internship was up. She just left. Um, I think it was because we couldn't get college credit for her, so she left. Uh, Saida kind of scaled back to being more of a contributor and to focus more on her business, which I understand 10,000% because I have a business. I was like, you know, do what you got to do. So when, you know, both of those things happened, the, directory kind of just fell by the wayside it was something else that I had to kind of pick up and do on top of making sure that the podcast was staying consistent on top of making sure that the blog was staying fairly consistent um, and it really just kind of fell by the wayside unfortunately um, I don't know if I would bring it back I really don't know I would have to see that interest I think from the revision path audience to see if that's something that they will want, but I'm not sure I want to put any more um, time into something, which I'm not sure that the community is really going to uh, take advantage of. So that in a nutshell is what happened to the directory. All right, this is from David S. And he asks, are you going to do another HBCU month this year? That's another good question. Um, I would love to do more themed months like that. Um, if you remember last year, we had an HBCU month in June. We had an LGBT month in October. Uh, doing those theme months is really hard in terms of scheduling. <laughs> um, it is really hard. Um, and I think that if I give myself, you know, more time, if I have more foresight, I can pull those off. I would love to do both another LGBT month and another HBCU month. Um, I'd also want to do an entrepreneur's month, like talk to owners of small firms to kind of get insight, particularly on entrepreneurship. Um, I don't know yet if there's going to be another one. I don't know. Uh, this is March. In a few weeks, I'm going to be at South by Southwest. I plan to do some interviews while I'm there. Those interviews, I think I'm going to run in April as part of a a South by Southwest month. I'm not 100% sure yet. Uh, I, I got to think about doing the theme months. They do take, like I said, a lot of planning, um, finding people, finding designers and developers and such from HBCUs that are willing to talk might be a problem. Finding members of the LGBT community that want to speak also might be a problem. And I don't want to like invite the same people to come back. Um, I want there to be a new person every week because I have had people before that said, oh, I'd love to come back on the show. And while I hate to say no to that, um, it's because I want to show like a diversity of, of viewpoints and different people. So I want to have as many different people as possible. 
Um, I am going to try. Both of those things are on my editorial calendar for both this quarter and next quarter to start doing that because it's one thing to look at black designers, but then when you really start kind of needling down into these subgroups like that, it can become a lot harder to find people. So I am thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Um, I will let all of you know if either of those months end up happening. Alrighty, next question here comes from Linda Boston. It's an interesting name. Uh, Linda asks, when is the next giveaway contest? Can you give away something useful this time, like a MacBook Pro? I really need one. Um, okay. So I decided at the beginning of this year that I'm not doing any more giveaways uh, for a few reasons. First reason is that giveaways were too expensive for me to keep doing on my current budget. Uh, if you remember for all these surveys, I always talked about, you know, giving away an Amazon.com gift card, $100, $50, etc. Um, those add up especially when no one claims them. <laughs> uh, I mean, granted, I can always re-gift it or something like that, but there's probably two or three gift cards I've given away that have went unclaimed. Um, speaking of unclaimed things, there are other giveaways we've had where people have won and then never claim the gift. And usually these are giveaways from third-party people, like it's a conference invite or it's um, you know something else like that. And people never actually claim them. And so what that ends up doing is for the person that donates the gift, it sort of makes revision path and me look bad because my audience isn't, I guess, proactive to, to, you know, claim a giveaway when they want something for free, which, you know, there's nothing really I can do there, but just put them in contact with them and hope that they work it out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's expensive and people don't claim the giveaways. So I decided kind of the last giveaway that uh, we did was with David Yard, who you remember was our 25th episode um, for the podcast. He gave away a signed copy of his book, Explore, along with a poster. And I think that that was the last giveaway that we did. And he approached me, asked me about doing it. I said, that would be great. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm not spending any more money on doing giveaways because I found that in the long run, it was not super uh, fruitful in terms of what I wanted to get from them. What I wanted to get from the giveaways is, you know, of course, more people finding out about the show, increase our email list, increase our Facebook likes, things like that. But um, yeah, what ends up happening, though, is that it's a bit of a, a decay once the, the uh, giveaway is over, right? So people join the list or they like you on Facebook just up until the contest. Then once the contest is over and they see that they didn't win, then they drop off. So you always end up getting that kind of like weird drop off. And that's happened with every giveaway that we've done so far, particularly as it relates to increasing those metrics. So, yeah, I don't know if I um, will do another giveaway. Uh, the other thing that, you know, kind of factors into doing giveaways is the audience numbers. And so, you know, because of the podcast, it has to deal with how many people are listening per episode, how many downloads is it getting, etc. So Revision Path is a very small show as it relates to other design podcasts, right? I would say on average, a Revision Path episode, and this is between Simplecast, which is where the podcast is hosted, where you see it in iTunes, between that 
and SoundCloud, I would say the average episode receives around mm, like 150 to 200 downloads. So not a lot. It doesn't get a lot um, in terms of numbers. And so the problem that ends up happening is that you can't approach advertisers with those low numbers because some of the, the uh, podcasting ad agencies like Archer Avenue or Midroll or something or Syndicate will come to you and they'll say, well, if you don't, if you're not getting 10,000 to 25,000 downloads per episode, we don't want to work with you. Which, you know, when you hear some of these bigger podcasts talk about, oh, we've gotten sponsorships or, or they're sponsored by Nature Box or Bevel or Dollar Shave Club or Squarespace, especially Squarespace, or, you know, things like this. It usually comes from those type of agencies. They've kind of struck a deal with them. Uh, Squarespace is like everywhere in terms of podcast saturation. Uh, the only reason that they are not sponsoring Revision Path is probably because A, our numbers are too low. And B, I am firmly in the camp of WordPress. <laughs> I teach a WordPress course. I've spoken at Word camps. I make money from building WordPress themes and doing WordPress consulting. So, you know, the site is on WordPress. So it would kind of not make sense if I'm like, oh, yeah, use Squarespace. I've only used Squarespace once. I can't really say that that's something that I would, use, you know, have as a, um, you know, as a giveaway or a sponsor or something like that. But yeah, those those factors kind of come into it. So when even when companies approach and want to do giveaways, they want to know if they do a giveaway, how many people are actually going to like sign up for it. And usually the mark that they look at is 10 percent of your um, episode of your average episode downloads. So, for example, if we're getting about 200 downloads an episode, they know that if they do a giveaway on average, about 20 people are going to like opt into it. And so for them, it's not really um, that effective. Like the giveaway is not effective because of course they want to do the giveaway to drive attention and traffic to their website for their product or their service. Right. But if there's not going to be a whole bunch of people, then it kind of doesn't make sense to do a giveaway. Right. So that's, that's kind of where we are with giveaways. I'm not going to do any more. If someone approaches me and wants to do one, I might do one. Uh, but I'm not spending any more money out of my pocket. I'm not spending any more sponsor money on doing giveaways because I haven't found that they really, I, A, I haven't found that they've worked and B, it doesn't seem like once someone wins, they really want the prize. Charles Grant asks a question that I've gotten a few times. Uh, how come you don't do tutorials? I would really like to see that. So as kind of as I've said before, I'm not really understanding the rationale behind wanting to see tutorials at Revision Path. Um, I know that the focus of the site is on designers and developers, but it's not, you know, we're not teaching you the ABC, this is not design 101 type of thing, right? Um, there are so many other places on the web that do tutorials really, really well. Learnable, Treehouse, Code School, Code Academy. Uh, there's a ton of places you can go and get really good top-notch design tutorials and education. Not really sure why you'd want it from Revision Path because that's really not in the scope of what I can provide um, time-wise or monetarily. Uh, and you know when I say you know monetarily because I don't have the time to put together tutorials. Um, I have a class that I teach for WordPress that takes up a good chunk of time. I don't really have time to put together 
anything more stuff outside of that. If I were to have people come and submit tutorials, I would want to be able to pay them accordingly. Right now, the most competitive rate or the competitive rate, I should say, on the market right now for tutorials is right around maybe like 200 bucks. And that's whether it's video or not. If it's just like text and pictures, it's still a lot because those are really super detailed posts. Look at any of the stuff that you see on um, like NetTuts Plus or, or any of the Tuts Plus websites. When people do tutorials, those things are extensive. And they have to be because you're basically procedurally breaking down something into steps that people can understand. Uh, so if someone wants to do that for the site, I would want to pay them accordingly. I would not expect them to do it for free, nor would I want them to do it for free. Uh, so that's why I don't really have tutorials. It's just not something I can afford, nor is it something that I have time for. Now, because this is something that people have asked several times, like, why don't you do tutorials? Um... I'm going to see what I can do about getting on Linda's affiliate partner program thing. Linda is lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A, uh, and doing something where you guys can get like a free trial or something. That's the most that I can do, unfortunately. I really don't have the time or the space to do anything outside of that as it would relate to tutorials. <laughs> Alright, the last question here is from Brianna Washington who asks about uh, t-shirts. I'd like to buy a Revision Path t-shirt. You sold some t-shirts in the past. Are you still doing that? Where can I buy one? Um, okay, so about the t-shirts and other kind of Revision Path merch, particularly about the t-shirts. Uh, we actually never sold a t-shirt. Uh, we tried to sell t-shirts using Teespring. Um, and the way Teespring works is very similar to how a Kickstarter campaign works. You create your shirt, you set your goal, and then once you meet whatever that goal is, then you uh, basically will get a payout and then your shirts will be printed. Um, I knew people that were doing really, really well. I mean, making money hand over fist using Teespring. They always had really successful campaigns. And so I said, you know what? I've been thinking about doing it. I'm going to do Teespring. So we did like a short campaign for about 20 shirts. I felt like that was enough that was actually probably about the least that I could do and and turn a profit for the price of the shirts and we only sold um I think one or two shirts and when I say sold I mean only one or two people pledged to have a shirt um and we needed 20 so because we didn't reach that the shirts were never printed now when I was in Ohio of in August last year I met some people from Teespring and I kind of relate to them everything that had happened as it relates to, you know, uh, how it didn't go well. And they're like, oh, well, we can work with you and we'll do marketing and we'll do this, that and the third and all this sort of stuff. And I really was excited about relaunching the campaigns to see if more people would be interested because Teespring had promised that they would throw their marketing behind it. They would throw their design behind it, etc. I was like, cool, we can do this. And this was right around the time that they started creating uh, the storefronts for Teespring. So then you could sell like multiple shirts with like multiple colors and all this kind of stuff. Cause if you remember the original shirt was just black and some people said that they would have purchased one if it was in a different color besides black. And so I looked at some popular colors, like we we're going to have one in red and green and white. Well, no, we weren't going to do white because the revision path is right, but red, green, black, pink, and purple. We're going to be the other colors for it. Um, and then 
uh, Teespring had designed a few shirts, kind of like doing a riff off of the logo. Some of them were okay. Some of them I did, really didn't like, but I decided, you know what? They're really trying and they're putting some effort behind it, so we're going to do it. And even doing that, like we had three campaigns at one point running concurrently, and each of those campaigns had five colors per shirt, and we didn't sell a single shirt. Um, <laughs> and this was after doing Facebook posts and Twitter posts and email newsletters. Uh, no one had bought a shirt. And so that pretty much like completely told me like no one's interested in buying revision path shirts. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just because it was, it was a shirt. Maybe if it was other merchandise that could have been the same way, but like I've got stickers that I had printed. Uh, the stickers kind of came out in the wrong color, but I ended up getting them anyway. This is from, I think sticker mule or something. Um, I can't give those stickers away. I mean, honestly, like I've tried to give those stickers away and people don't want them. So in terms of revision path merch, I am not sold on the idea of putting any effort towards doing that. I think you'll find that's a constant theme behind a lot of things that people are asking for. Um, I'm not seeing the return back from the audience as it being something that you all want. Like I'm trying a bunch of things to see if they work. Uh, and none of them are really working. So it's like, all I can keep doing at this point is just doing the interviews. Cause I know you all like the interviews. People tell me they really like the interviews. So I'm just going to stick with doing the interviews. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do any merch. Now, what I did end up doing was getting a shirt printed for myself. Like I got, I have, you know, the high res version of the logo and I took it to, uh, custom ink and I have my own shirt made, but <laughs> as far as selling shirts with the Revision Path logo and all that sort of stuff on there, um, I am not, like I said, I'm not convinced that that's something that I'm going to do again. I would really have to see an outpouring from the community saying that they want it in order for me to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to spend my time and money. To, yeah, that's a common thread. I feel like I'm a black mother. Like, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z if you're not going to be, you know, appreciative of it or whatever. And I, I, I hate to say it that way, but that's, you know, that's kind of how it shakes out. If I put forth that money and that effort and that time to do it and no one is interested in it, then it's like, well, why did I do it if nobody really wanted it? Uh, so that's kind of the saga of the shirts. That's what happened there. Um, I did vow I would never work with Teespring again after that because I feel like it was a complete bait and switch. Uh, they have really poor customer service. All the people I've talked to have felt like they've had to give their two cents as to why revision path doesn't work, which I don't really care about. So yeah. Um, no more shirts, no more shirts. Um, if I do one, I, I don't know if I'll do one to be quite honest with you right now. My focus is just on the interviews and making sure that those stay consistent but if you all really want a shirt, you're going to have to like write me in mass and tell me that you want a shirt. So I know in my mind that this is something that you want or some other type of revision path merchandise.
I think the overarching uh, theme of a lot of this is that your support is really what helps make Revision Path grow. Um, your financial support, your uh, support in just spreading the show to people so they can learn about it, talking about the show, tweeting about the show, Facebooking about the show. All of that helps the show grow in so many ways. I think that's the overarching theme. So if there are things that you want to see from Revision Path, you got to help support it. It's not enough, I think, to just listen, especially, I mean, we're talking two years in, we're talking almost 70 episodes. Um, I mean, we'll certainly hit 100 by the summer, but we're talking a lot of episodes here and that's nothing to slouch at. That I mean, the fact that I've been able to get and talk to all of these black designers and developers and such is no small feat. And it's something that no other design media is doing right now. Nobody else is doing this right now. Um, that's just a fact. I'm just, that's just a fact. Nobody else is doing this right now. So if this is something that you are really getting value from, by all means, hit up revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know with your dollars because that is how the show grows and that's how we're able to provide more things of value to you besides just these interviews. I mean, I love the interviews, don't get me wrong, but there's stuff I would love to do that, you know, fortunately just don't have the money to pull off. It's, you know, kind of how it works. So if you remember, we did an audience survey a few months ago in November and December, and I, you know, have a link, I'll put a link in the show notes to the survey results where I sort of just broke down what it was, but there were a couple of things in particular that I really wanted to, um, to kind of touch on. Uh, so <laughs> the first thing that I, uh, people had mentioned was about the sound quality of the guests. Um, RJ and myself, we really try to improve this as much as possible. There are some podcasts that, uh, their hosts actually mail microphones to their guests ahead of the interview. So they'll buy like a 40 to $60 microphone, mail it to them just so they're sure that they'll get good audio. So the people that we interview, I mean, some of them have great audio, some of them have, you know, not so great audio, particularly when I'm talking with people that are overseas, the audio may not be that great overall because of the distance, I guess. So, um, we try to clean that up as much as possible to make sure that it sounds decent, right? Uh, that's part of it. The other part of it is actually just the host that we use for hosting the, um, the audio file. So we record at a project rate of a hundred, I'm sorry, of uh, 44 kilohertz is what we, re- what we record at. Not kilohertz, megahertz. Anyway, we re- was well, 44,100 hertz, however you break that down. That's what we record at. And we export at uh, 192 kilobytes per second MP3 with a constant bit rate. CBR is always good. CBR is good. VBR is bad. Anyway, even once we take that, you know, pretty good quality audio file and we import that into SoundCloud and we import that to our web host, there's still compression that happens that then takes that and makes it a lower quality MP3 for streaming, for downloading, etc. To the human ear, it's supposed to be, you know, kind of negligible in terms of the quality, but that can sometimes also affect the quality of the episode. So it's not always the connection. It's not always the mic. Sometimes it's just the service. And I think anyone that does podcasting that uses a third party service is aware of that. You know, you try to do as well as you can with what you have, but it can still get nerfed a little bit. People have asked about multiple guests. 
Uh, it's really kind of hard enough to schedule one guest, to be quite honest with you. Uh, the way that people schedule for interviews or, or the way that I do it is there's a page on the site where people can fill out a form and then they pick a time from a calendar and stuff like that. And we meet up. And even then, it's a you know it can be a crapshoot on the day of. They may cancel five minutes before. They may cancel 10 minutes into the interview. So trying to do multiple people is... Uh, is difficult to really kind of make that happen. My setup right now is strictly for doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. I might be able to do one-on-two -on interviews if, you know, there are two people maybe sharing a microphone on a Skype, you know, call or something like that. But my setup's for one-on-one, -on -one, and so that's what the interviews are for Revision Path. Uh, people wish they could see the interview. Uh, no, I don't think it's going to happen, mainly because that's more editing and more work that has to be done in terms of video and stuff like that. When I'm recording at my desk, my desk doesn't have a webcam. Um, and usually I don't really feel like it's important to me that we have the video. And the, the main reason for that is because we record at all times of day and night whenever we're recording. Some people really don't want to be on video and I want to make them as comfortable as possible when it comes to uh, them talking to me. So some people want to be on camera. Some people don't want to be on camera. Uh, I just want them to be comfortable so we don't do cameras. We just just talk it out. And, you know, I think it's turned out pretty good doing it that way. Uh, written transcripts, that's sort of what I talked about before, the cost of that. The additional cost for doing transcripts, if I use uh, Rev.com, which is a transcription service that I use, depending on the length of the interview, it really depends. It's a dollar per minute, so... The average revision path interview is about 45 minutes. So we're talking $45 for longer interviews. We're talking upwards $60 to $90. You know, it just depends on how long the interview is on, you know, what the transcription cost is. And that's not a cost right now that I can afford on top of doing the audio production. Uh, some people say that the interviews are sometimes scripted. Sometimes I do have go-to questions in my head. Um, like I tell everyone that I interview with, I ask them the same two questions. Uh, tell us who you are and what you do and where can our audience find you online? And then everything in the middle, I really just have bullet points. I'm pulling from, you know, the bio that they sent me or I'm pulling from LinkedIn or I'm pulling from their website and I'm just kind of going where the conversation goes. Uh, the other question that I ask them before we start is I call it my Oprah question. I ask them, once people are finished listening to this interview, what do you want them to walk away from it knowing or feeling? It can be a particular viewpoint. Um, it can be something about your work. When the interview is all said and done, what is it that you want people to feel like they've gotten from it in terms of value? And so from there, I steer the conversation to make sure that we hit that goal. And then anything else is ancillary. I'm making sure that we hit that particular goal of what is it you want people to walk away from this interview really knowing and feeling. Uh, someone asked, they wish that the show had iOS and Ruby programmers. Uh, we just had an iOS developer last week, Ashley Nelson Hornstein. Uh, before her, there was Joe Blau. Joe Blau does software development. Um, if there are any iOS or Ruby developers out there that want to be on the show that feel like they have a good story to tell, hit me up. I would love to talk to you. Uh, let's see what else listener questions. So I experimented with doing listener questions. Someone was asking why I don't solicit questions from like the revision path audience. Um, and it's kind of, 
well, I did it for this episode. So, I mean, I know that it, it does work. But because of the timetable of the interviews, because the interviews are on a weekly basis, uh, you really have to get, like when I put out a call for questions, people have to like answer quickly. Um, and that's not something that people really do when it comes to this stuff. Uh, I've, like I said, I've tried it before. Didn't really work. People would ask me questions after I've done an interview. Even when I've asked like up to a week before, I'll say, hey, okay, I'll give you a prime example. So I interviewed Kimberly Bryant back in, I think it was August. Uh, it might've been August, maybe September. I interviewed her. I think it was September. And I asked questions in a Facebook group that I'm a part of. I was like, hey, I'm going to be talking to Kimberly Bryant, uh, executive director, founder, Black Girls Code. If you have any questions for her, please let me know before this date and this time. Uh, the date and time passed. I talked with Kimberly. We had a great conversation. I recorded it. I go back to the Facebook group. Now there's questions. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. One person uh, did email me a question, Jacinda Walker. And so her question did end up in the episode. But then I was just like, uh, you, y'all have to get back to me on time if I'm going to do this. And so I don't know if I'll do the listener questions again. If there are questions I think that you want people ask like just send me the questions and I'll try to work them into a future interview but mostly doing the um doing those type of listener questions eh, the timing has to be better than what it is if I if I were to do that uh people asked about having students or teachers on to give different perspectives I think that's a good idea part of the work that I do with AIGA's diversity and inclusion task force is talking with uh, HBCU professors about getting student groups and stuff going there so I actually think that would be a good idea to like talk to a design professor at an HBCU about like the work that they do. That's a really good idea. Uh, if we do HBCU month, I'm going to do that. Totally, totally, absolutely. Oh, uh, let's see. Let's see. So the blog, um, when I asked about the blog on the survey, I was kind of surprised by the results. Um, over 60% of people either never read the blog or rarely read it. Um, almost 70% have never read any of the long-form interviews. 54% have never re uh, read the articles. Uh, that's kind of disheartening <laughs> um, because I really wanted the blog to be a good <clears throat> sort of extra component outside of the podcast. I wanted that to be something that people could really pay attention to because, you know, when it comes to design media once again none of it is really from or for you know the perspective of a black designer or a black developer or a black creative uh, there's very little that you will see if anything maybe during black history month if then you won't really see that much <clears throat> so i really tried to find writers like i i have had a page on the site now for a long time saying that if you want to come write for us you can i put the call to action in every monthly newsletter that we send out that we're looking for guest bloggers and the people that usually end up responding are like SEO writers in India somewhere that are using like a fake picture and don't have the best English grammar. And it's like, I'm not going to take this because I don't think it's quality, you know, like, like it's clear that they haven't read the site. They just saw like design technology and they give me some basic stuff like, how to make a hyperlink. Well, I'm pretty sure you know how to make a hyperlink. Like this is not the focus here. I've had writers that have told me that they were interested in writing for revision path, but they don't know how to write to a black audience to which I would tell them, you know, you're writing to an audience of designers and developers. 
So, you know, there's nothing extra that you have to throw in that's like black as it relates to that, just right to tech and design. Uh, So finding writers has been, you know, a challenge and, you know, seeing that we don't really have readers. I've sort of watched the decline of the blog over the past few months. To me, it's a bit disheartening because I really wanted the blog to be something extra. I really wanted it to work and it doesn't look like it's catching on. So I, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know between my clients and between the podcasts and between my students, I don't really have time to like churn out a bunch of articles, which is why I was trying to get, you know, reliable writers that I don't have to really edit their work too much. They can just write and post and write and post. It's, it's tough. It's tough. We had, I mean, I've even put, uh, postings on like those freelance writing boards, you know, and the people that respond, it's not the quality that I'm looking for. You know, I'm not expecting you to be like Hemingway or anything, but your subjects and verbs should agree at the very least, you know? So uh, I'm disappointed in the blog. I'm not sure where it's going to go in the next few uh, months. I feel like I'm going to probably just jettison it in some sort of way. I don't know what I'm going to do with those 30 something interviews. I still want to keep those around in some capacity because they are really great interviews. If you haven't checked them out, please do just go to the blog, just search for interview. Like it's, they're really good. They're really, really good. I really suggest you check them out, but I'm not sure what to do with the blog. Cause I want it to be something, but I've tried to put money and resources into it and it's just not working. So that's that, uh, donations. You know, I talked about that before, you know, what they pay for, they pay for improvements. They pay for transcripts and they pay for paid writers to write content for the blog and, you know, lots of other stuff. Uh, like I said before, the overarching theme is that, you know, without your support, without your financial support, revision path doesn't really grow like it should. It stays in the same place. Um, based on the survey, 92% of people have not donated. 80% were familiar with the fundraising page that we've got on, uh, on tugboat yards. Um, and we had a really, actually a decent round of, um, a fundraising back in like December, uh, Shanley Kane, who is the, the head honcho over at model view culture, model view media, um, tweeted something out for giving Tuesday. And we got a lot of, we got a, I think that tweet probably raised us about a thousand dollars, which is great. Um, that money ended up going right into like upgrading my gear and a bunch of other stuff, uh, but you know, if I was getting a thousand dollars every month to really kind of keep up with the upkeep of revision path, that would be awesome. That would be amazing. I could do a lot with that money. Uh, but you know, we're not, uh, at the $5 fist bump level as you know, kind of what I mentioned before, you know, that's a regular kind of monthly pledge, a monthly donation right now. I am making $5 a month <laughs> from that. We've only got one person that is giving on a regular basis. Uh in terms of like podcast upkeep, I'm looking at probably about a hundred, hundred and twenty-five dollars a month for upkeep. You know, and that's hosting, that's audio hosting, that's paying the audio engineer. Like it's not cheap. So if I'm making five dollars and spending a hundred, you know, and that's not including marketing, but little marketing that I try to do for Revision Path, you know, it is ends up not becoming very economically viable, right? Uh, interviews, people asked about, um, interviews. So here's one interesting thing. A lot of people recommend folks that should be interviewed, 
Like they'll send me an email or send me a message on Facebook and say, you should talk to blank or you should talk to these people because they're really good X, Y, Z. The problem with that is if I reach out to that person, there's a pretty good chance they're not going to want to talk to me because I don't know them. Right. So I would say if there's someone that you really want to see on the show, you need to let them know and let me know. So that way, when I try to reach out to them about something, it's not this weird, cold, you know, hey, who are you kind of thing. Not that I haven't done that before. Like I said, most of the time when I'm reaching out to people, it is people I don't know. But usually if it's a a recommendation of someone, like let them know and let me know. So that way they can see it's like a mutual interest. It's not just me like spitting in the wind, so to speak. Like it really helps if you have that kind of mutual introduction to someone that you want to see on the show. Uh, There's certainly a lot of big people that I would love to see on the show that people recommend on a very regular basis but you know i reached out to them and gotten crickets so there's only so much i can do at all you know when it comes to that and then lastly uh marketing 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 so a lot of people were saying that they don't really know about revision path i mean even now it's been around two years and it's something that a bunch of people still don't really know a ton of stuff about um I try to do marketing with revision path as I can. Uh, marketing is not something that is really my forte when it comes to my projects. I don't want to say I'm letting the work <clears throat> speak for itself, but yeah, the marketing is not really, really my forte <clears throat> when I'm doing it. Like I post, you know, let's say I, you know, do an interview and it's ready to go up on Monday. I'll post it in designer news, which I'm now seeing is not the best community to do that because nobody pays attention to stuff in designer news unless it has to do with like an argument or some weird, obscure UX thing. Um, I do Facebook ads. I post on my personal Tumblr, personal LinkedIn, personal Facebook. I used to post it in a few Facebook groups um, until I saw that I was not really getting that return back from them in terms of referral traffic or listeners. Cause I can see all that, like in SoundCloud and stuff. Um, and I also used to post in LinkedIn groups and that was probably my biggest mistake because the LinkedIn groups, what they ended up doing was you'll post something and then they'll keep it as pending. And for some groups that I really thought would benefit from seeing these interviews, and these were like black design groups, my posts have been pending for like months and months and months back. So I'm thinking they're going out to everybody to see, and in turn, nobody is seeing them. So I stopped using uh, LinkedIn groups. And none of the other stuff I mentioned have really worked except for Facebook ads. Uh, the Facebook ads do drive likes to the Facebook page, but even now I think we're probably at about 320 likes or something, which, you know, is not a lot for having been around for two years. Um, and with the way that Facebook sharing algorithm is, it's really tough. So even when I post stuff to Facebook that I want everyone to see on average, I would say about two to 5% of fans are seeing each update, right? So if we're talking 320 fans, um, 10% of that is 32 fans. So 5% of that is 16. Fans. We're talking like not a lot of people are even seeing the updates. So the, you know, and the way that Facebook does it, you have to kind of pay to play to really get 
your stuff out there, which is why I do the ads. I do them at small amounts, like five bucks here, 10 bucks here. Um, and they work in bringing in, you know, eyeballs, but they're not really sticking around after that. So other than that, any marketing that I do for revision path is usually through word of mouth, right? I reach out to other design podcasts. Um, actually I did a, a last week, I did an interview with uh, the guys over at On The Grid, if you want to check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That was a very, um, it's not like most interviews I do, that was a very candid interview, uh, sort of talking about black designers and such, but I try to reach out to other design podcasts and websites. I usually either get no reply at all, or I get a negative reply. Like I think I said before, there are sites that will tell me flat out, like, we don't want to cover that race shit. And, you know, that quote unquote race shit being black designers, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to feature it. They feel like it's too controversial. You know, and these are things that I've heard that I've gotten back from people. So a large part of, you know, the fact that people haven't heard about Revision Path is that when I pitch to certain publications and websites and podcasts, they're just not interested because it's black. And that sucks a lot, but that's the truth. That's, that's the God honest truth. That's what ends up happening. Um, I know some fans have said that they've reached out to some black magazines like Essence and Ebony for et cetera, or some that have reached out to certain black nerd sites or blurred sites. Um, I've not really heard anything or gotten anything from that either. I know there was one person who told me that, uh, this was a while ago. I don't even know if that ever materialized in anything, but there was a woman who told me that she talked with black girl nerds about doing an interview uh, with me. And I was like, oh yeah, that would be great. And she said she was going to set up a, um, an introduction or something. Um, I never heard anything back from that. So I don't know if that's going to happen. That was like, that was last year. I don't think that's going to happen, but so marketing is, you know, a problem in terms of really getting people to, look at it and understand it because the design community, at least from what I've seen when I try to pitch, they're not interested because it's black. And then I guess the black publications that uh, we've reached out to, when I say we, there, we, I had another intern named Stephanie. Um, and Stephanie is amazing. If Stephanie is listening, she is amazing. Stephanie worked with me on the Black Weblog Awards. She's now worked with me, you know, kind of off and on with Revision Path because she's doing her own thing. But she's been amazing. She put together some query letters um, sent them to, I think, Wired, Fast Company, and Ebony, I think. Um, but that was about a month ago. I don't, I, I haven't heard anything back from them. Out, so I'm not sure that they're interested as well. So it's, it's a tough sell. It's a very tough sell for Revision Path as it relates to the unique focus of this site, which is Black Designers. It's a tough fucking sell. So, like I've said before, if this is something that you feel is important, like you got to let people know, I know I'm letting people know on my end, but I'm just one person with all the other opportunities, not opportunities, but all the other stuff that I'm doing with teaching and clients and stuff. I hate to say revision path is still kind of very much a side project. This is not my nine to five job. So there's only so much I can devote to it on a regular basis to kind of keep it going. And right now that's with the interviews and just sort of keeping things at that level. That's the most that I can do right now. If I had more funds, I could hire people to do more. So revision path could grow, but that's not the position that I'm really at right now. So that's, 
that's the skinny on where we're at two years later. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to sound like a downer. I really don't. I mean, I'm really super, super, super proud of Revision Path. I'm proud of the people that I've been able to interview, of the people who listen on a regular basis, of the people who write me and do tell me really great things. Uh, one person that I interviewed, Joe Blau, his father wrote me like a like a letter that made me cry that I had to print out and put over my desk. So I look at that for inspiration. Like, you know, I get some really great feedback from people. I'm not going to make it seem like it's all doom and gloom over here. It's not. It's not. Um, but, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm putting out something that is valuable for you. Right. And in order for me to do that, you know, there are things that I need. But my main goal is making sure that aside from, you know, I'm showcasing and telling the stories of black creatives because no one else is um, making sure that it's a value to you and making sure that I'm providing the things that you want and that you are looking for. And in order to do that, I do need, you know, kind of your support. I'm not going to turn this into a pledge drive. I'm not going to keep asking about it. But um, that's yeah, that's where we're at. You know, I want to thank all of you again for listening, for downloading. It really means the world to me. I cannot, cannot stress enough how much this means to me uh, that I've been able to get this project off the ground and it's been going now for two years. Like, that's crazy. I, I can't stress that enough. I know that people who, are, who I've interviewed have told me that they've gotten jobs. They've gotten other speaking opportunities. So I know that this is a good platform for them. It's a springboard for them. More people find out about the work that they do. So it's, it's really great in those aspects. I don't want to, you know, water down the good aspects by saying we can't do more unless we get more money. But, you know. I, I want to give you both sides of it so you're aware and, and you know that this is kind of what it is on a regular basis. It's keeping things afloat. It's juggling balls. It's me seeing how much money I have to pull out of my personal account in order to front something because we don't have sponsor money. And that's just that's just the deal. That's just what it is. So I'm going to end this here. This has been already a long podcast where I've been talking for over an hour. Um, interviews are going to resume next week. Uh, next week's interview is with Abun Olaloye, who is the founder of Live Breathe Football. It's a really good interview. And then I'm going to do some interviews while I'm in Austin for South by Southwest. Uh, the rest of March's interviews are already kind of in the can and ready to publish. So again, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. If you want to support Revision Path, Go to revisionpath.com forward slash donate. Leave a tip in the tip jar, sponsored episode, $5 fist bump, and definitely subscribe in iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews Revision Path gets, the more it kind of goes up in the design rankings, and the higher it gets, the more people find out about it. Um, so all of that stuff is super important. If you can't give any money, please leave a rating and a review. It's free. It's an iTunes. It takes you less than five minutes. That's the least you can do. And that would help out so much. So again, I'm going to end it here. Thank you again for listening to me ramble for an hour <laughs> in your ear. Hopefully you got some information about kind of what I deal with on a regular basis. Uh, take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. Again, new interviews will be back on Monday, next Monday on the 9th. Um, I'll see you then.